I just got back from the Moorpark Church, and again, it was just absolutely amazing out there. Even more people this week. Um, it's, it's bigger than this service, and it's about half the energy, though, <laughs> of, the, of the service. Um, pray for that. I mean, God is doing a great work out there. And, uh, and if, if any of you guys live out that way in Moorpark, there's still plenty of room because that gym can uh, seat about 2,000 people. And, but it's been nice because it's clearing out some spaces for our services here. But God's doing a great work, and please continue to pray for uh, what's going on out there in Moorpark, because it's, it's pretty awesome. Well, this week, uh, this week on Monday, I got to go see that new Mel Gibson movie on The Passion of Christ. Oh, my gosh. It was, uh, it was incredible. It doesn't come out till February 25th, but some of us are pretty special. And, uh, no, wait... I got to go to a private screening. It was just, and, and Mel had a Q&A session afterwards. It was just Mel, myself, and uh, 4,000 other people. But he was looking at me the whole time. Okay. No, the, the movie, though, the movie is just something you've got to see. I mean, it, it is the greatest movie ever made. It, it was so incredibly powerful, and I just know has has just changed my life. I mean, it's just, for those who don't know, he, he, made, he produced this movie about just the, the end of Christ's life and the Passion Week of, of Christ's life. And it is so powerful and so wonderfully done. I mean, the way I'll take communion, the way I think about the cross, everything is just different. Um, but, but afterwards, during the question and answer time, and the question was asked uh, to Mel if he felt called. Was it like a calling to make this movie? And his reply was, he goes, I, I wasn't just called. He goes, I was pushed. He was, uh, this was something that I knew I had to do. Um, and, and he talked about how, he goes, every day there was such a spiritual attack. And it, it was like, you know, he goes, I just felt like arrows were coming at me. You know, just, just the enemy didn't want this thing made. And he goes, but as hard as it was to make it, he goes, it would have been a lot harder for me not to make it. And... Uh, and he talked about, and this is what, what hit me, he says, you know, he was in the middle of producing another film. And in the middle, it's like he just knew it was his time to make this movie. He'd been thinking about it long enough, planning long enough, and as God just said, drop everything and do it. And so he did. He just left in the middle of the other movie and just said, I, I'm putting all my attention and energy into this. And, and here now he's created something that's, that's going to make an eternal difference. And... It was just interesting because he made that statement on Monday and Sunday. I was just talking about that last week. Remember when I was just talking about how, man, would this just be that year where you take a step of faith and where 2004 actually counts for something, counts for something eternal? And I don't know if you did anything in response to that, but I didn't want to make it just like this one week, you know, big emotional plea, go and serve God. You know, and that's why this week we have more opportunities for you out there, because we really want this year to really count for all of us. Where, where maybe this is the first time in your life you actually do something that has an eternal significance and really to dream big. You know, we, we put some new opportunities out there. For some of you, you know, there's, there's a church planting conference coming up. Um, for the inner city through World Impact. Maybe it's something huge. Maybe it's something that's absolutely crazy just out of your reach, like going out and starting a church in the inner city. Um, there's, there's other things out there, like, like maybe it's not this huge mystery like that, but we have a, a table for those who may be interested in, in being a foster parent. And maybe it's taking in a couple of kids or a kid that, that, who, whose parents are neglecting him or her. And, and maybe it's, it's your year where you, you bring someone into your home and show them love. 
Um, but and there's so many other opportunities. Maybe it's, it's, it's a year where you start working on your marriage and we've got some small groups and, you know, encounter groups that will help you with your marriage. There, there's so many different opportunities. Uh, we, we just, we're going to keep bringing it before you because we want this to be the year where you go, you know, I, wanna, I want it to be different. I keep saying I'm going to serve God, but this is the year I will do it. And to start and to look into some different opportunities. But regardless of what you choose, I mean, the one thing we ask is just, do it out of love. God doesn't want us just to serve and just to, to, to make things happen because we're told to do it. It's, it's about a motivation of love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he goes, Even if I give everything I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Love has got to be what motivates us. And when you look at, at the life of Christ and you look at God himself, you see that so much of what he does is motivated by love. I mean, why did God send his son to die on the, on the cross? I mean, why, why did he give his only begotten son? It says, because he so loved the world. That's what motivated him. And, and see, for much of my life, I, I, and I've shared this before, I, I've looked at God uh, like a machine. Like, well, he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't have emotions. And almost like, uh, like, like that would be a weakness or something. And yet the truth is, is when you study the scriptures, you see that cover to cover, God talks about his emotions, his feelings, his grieving, him, him having, having pain, suffering pain. And, and, and uh, you know, it talks about his joy, his anger, his, all, all these different emotions. And, and today we're really going to look at his love, his passion towards you. It, it's like this, you know. On, on Monday when I came back after seeing the film, I, I talked to my, my daughter Rachel, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, it's really hard for Daddy to watch. Daddy started to well up with tears, you know, and I was like trying not to cry. And she starts to laugh, and she goes, Dad. I'm like, what? I, I, it, was, it was hard for Daddy to watch. She goes, Dad, you don't cry. She goes, Dad, I've never seen you cry. That would have been kind of funny. She goes, but you don't cry. I go, no, I'm telling the truth. I seriously almost did. And it was like in her mind, it was like in her reasoning, she's like, there's no way. Because you know how sometimes a, a little kid will look at dad and just say, no, he's too strong. You know, he doesn't cry. You know, mom, you know, and on the other, you know but, but dad, you know, he, uh, he doesn't do that. And sometimes they can see us as this cold, you know, and, and I feel like that's what I am in, in God's eyes. Sometimes I view him that way. Like... No, come on. The holy, almighty creator, like, like he has any feelings, you know, and it's almost like because of the strength, a lot of times we'll question the feelings and the emotions. And, and the truth is, you know, as my daughter may look at me in that way, like, oh, he can't cry or he wouldn't get hurt. The truth is, is she's probably the one that could hurt me the easiest. You know what I mean? Because, because it's those ones, the ones that you really love that can hurt you the most. Right? I mean, if you came up to me today and said, hey, Francis, I hate you, I'd say, great, join the club. You know, but, <laughs> but, you know, if I had, you know, my daughter, you know, my daughter or my wife, you know, one of my girls comes up and says that, man, that's, I, I'd fall apart. You know why? Because it's those that you love the most that it's like the little things they do really can hurt you. And, and what I... What I want to explain today as I talk about the passion that God has for you is just for you to understand 
that it's not like God's up in heaven saying, okay, here's my son, you believe in him, you'll be with me, you reject him, I'll send you to hell, no big deal, it's your choice. That's, that's not God's heart at all. What you see in the Bible is a God that looks at you, looks at me and says, man, I love you and I want a relationship with you. It's not that, okay, just choose either way, it's up to you. It's like, gosh, I'm, I, I'm longing for you to choose me and want a relationship with me. And we see that so clearly in this passage where Jesus just loves these people so much and it tears them apart that they're rejecting him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, we continue our, our, our study through the book of Luke, which is the story of, of the life of Christ. In Luke chapter 13, in verse 31, it says this. It says, at, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Okay, now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the Pharisees are not exactly best friends with Jesus, right? I mean, they've been going at it. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day. And Jesus has been attacking them, showing that they're a bunch of hypocrites. And so they're angry at Jesus. They want him dead. So why would they come here in this, in this instance and say, Jesus, you've got to leave this place because Herod wants to kill you. Why would they warn him? You ever think of that? Well, the truth is, is that they were not warning him. This is a trap for him. Okay, they, they actually didn't want Jesus in the same jurisdiction of King Herod. You know what, let me, uh, before I get into this, I've got to give you some background. I've got to explain the Roman Empire to you. And I know a lot of you guys came here this morning hoping I would do this. Okay, but, but it, just for you to understand what's going on here, let me explain some things about the Roman Empire and how it worked, okay? Now, now, a lot of empires in the past, what they would do is if they would come and conquer a country, they would just come and they would kill everyone. Okay, they just come, kill everyone in that land, and they take over the land. Look, there's no more, you know, Babylonians, no more Assyrians, whatever it is. We killed them all. This is our land, and we, we grow as an empire. The Roman Empire was not that way. There were other empires that came, and what they would do is they would grab the people out of their land and pull them out of their land and bring them to themselves. Okay, the Roman Empire didn't do that either. What the Roman Empire did, how it grew, was that they would go, they would conquer land, conquer the people, but they would leave, you know, a lot of the people alive. And they would leave the people in their land. And they would bring their own rulers, their own governors, to oversee and kind of be the government of that area. So they would let the people carry on business as usual. In fact, they wanted the people to prosper. It's kind of weird, but they wanted the people to prosper, and this is why. If their governor could keep the people happy, then they would make money, and then the government would come and tax them to death, okay, and take all of their money. And that's why you see in the New Testament why the people despise the tax collectors from the Roman government. It's because they're wicked, they're cruel, they're taking money from themselves, and plus Rome was trying to take all their, everything that they were worth anyways. So does that make sense? Okay, that's a Roman government. And so what Herod is, is Herod is one of those governors that was overseeing this area of Perea where Jesus was. And so the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, Herod, the governor of this area, wants to kill you. You've got to get out of here. But the truth was, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus being under Herod because actually he was safe there. 
See, Herod, Herod was a little bit scared of Jesus. Okay? Because if you remember the story, King Herod was the one that took his brother's wife, remember that, for himself. And then John the Baptist confronts, you know, Herod and says, hey, you can't take your brother's wife. He goes, oh yeah, watch me. And he puts John the Baptist in jail. And then that girl comes out and does that coochie coochie dance. And, uh, and, uh, and Herod says, hey, what do you want? And, and she says, you know, chop his head off. Chop off the head of John the Baptist. And so, uh, so, so Herod chops John the Baptist's head off. And then he starts hearing all these things about this man, Jesus, and everything that Jesus is doing and all these miracles. And remember that passage where he, he started to get a little nervous because he's thinking, wait a second, who is this man that's doing all these miraculous things is this John the Baptist coming back to life to haunt me? Okay, so Herod's a little nervous, and, and the Pharisees, they want Jesus dead, but they're not going to be able to use Herod as a puppet. But there was another guy down in Judea, a guy named Pontius Pilate. Okay, and so what the, the Pharisees are doing, they're trying to get Jesus out of the territory of Herod down to the area where Pontius Pilate was the governor. And the reason for that is Pontius Pilate was not doing a very good job in the Roman government's eyes because they, he was not keeping the people happy. There were uprisings. There was quarreling going on. And when that happens, the economy's not good. They're not getting their money. It's just a bunch of issues and, and a bunch of uprisings. And so Pilate could not afford another uprising. So the Pharisees knew, if we get Jesus down in Judea, then we can go to Pilate and say, you better crucify this guy. You better kill him. Otherwise, we'll, we'll start an uprising. And so when all the people before Pilate are screaming, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate's going, oh no, another uprising. All right, all right, go ahead. Do whatever you want with this man. You see that? I mean, and that's exactly what happens. So understand when the Pharisees here are telling Jesus, hey, you got to get out of here. It's not that they're really warning him. It's because they wanted him out of Herod's jurisdiction down in Judea where Pilate was. So Jesus' response, and I'll kind of a long explanation of that one verse, but in verse 32, Jesus replies, he replied, Go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today, tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus, you know, after they say, hey, Herod's trying to kill you, Jesus' response is, hey, go tell that fox. And when he calls him a fox, doesn't mean he thought he was attractive. He, uh, he says, uh, when he calls him a fox, the idea is, is the fox was, you know, kind of the sneaky, cunning, yet cowardice um, animal. And he goes, you know, you, you just tell that fox that I'm not leaving this area. I'm, uh, I'm going to heal people today. I'm going to heal them tomorrow. On the third day, when I reach my goal, then I'll go. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was talking about a little three days. It was actually Hebraism, which, which just meant, I'm just going to stay here till my work is done. And when I'm done, then I'll go. He goes, and don't worry, I'll get down to Jerusalem. Because he goes, hey, it's not like any prophet's going to die outside of Jerusalem. And really, I mean, we, li we listen to that and go, okay, what does he mean by that? It, it actually was kind of a sarcastic remark. Um, some people say this was Jesus' best one-liner. Um, it, it's the whole idea of he's just saying, you know what? Hey, it's not like a prophet's going to die outside Jerusalem. Um, it, it was a slam on the people who were rejecting the prophets. Um, it, Jerusalem had a history 
of that was the city. God, God put his name on that city. And so, so God would send his prophets to those people and say, look, God loves you. Would you just repent? He just wants to, to care for you. And, and yet if you keep going the wrong direction, you're going to get his wrath rather than his love and his protection. And these people would get angry at those prophets and kill them. And so the very people that God was sending prophets to save were the very people that were killing the prophets. And Jesus says, well, it's not like a prophet's going to die. You know, God forbid that you know, a prophet die outside of Jerusalem. He goes, don't worry, I'll go down there. And I'll die down there. And um, I mean, basically, Jesus' response is telling Herod, telling the Pharisees, I'm not scared. I'm going to do what I need to do. And we need to learn from that. You know, sometimes we do, there's so many things we don't do in life out of fear the truth is, is look, is, is your life going to end before God wants it to? You know, I, I mean, just, just do what, what God's called you to do. Don't worry about it. If you know that, that God wants you to do something, just do it. He'll take care of you, and your time will come when it comes. You can't make it any sooner. You can't make it any later. That's the way Jesus lived his life. He knew the plan. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew he was going to die in Jerusalem. It's just going to happen. He didn't, he didn't dodge Jerusalem. He didn't dodge Judea because he knew he was going to die there. He just, it was going to be his time. Anyways, it goes on, and this is where it gets heavy. It's verse 34. In verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so Jesus, after making that statement about Jerusalem, they're the ones that kill the prophets, then, then he, he gives this, this word, it's really a word of lament. You know, where he just goes, Ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he uses this analogy. He goes, he goes I'm, like, I'm like a hen. Okay, picture this. He goes, I'm like a hen that wants to just gather all her chicks together. You're my people. I just want to gather you under my wings. I mean, that was a picture of this protection of this mother hen saying, I'll give my life for you. I'll protect you, but you just stay close to me. He goes, that's all I ever wanted of you. Okay, understand, that's all God wants of us. He's saying, it's not like I just give you a bunch of rules and you just follow this or that. He goes, I love you. And I'm just like this mother hen and how I wish I could just protect you and how I could just be your God, be your king, and I'll give you these commands to help you live and, and just protect you. I'll be your God. He goes, but you're not willing. And he goes, how often I long to gather you together. But you weren't willing. You're like the chick that just keeps running away thinking there's something better out there away from God, away from his protection. But it's Jesus grieving. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 19. Turn, turn ahead a little bit. I, I just want to point, you out, point a couple of verses out to you. Later on in, in his life, Luke 19 verse, uh, verse 41. Let, look what happens here. And try to picture this in your mind, okay? Luke 19, 41. It's talking about Jesus. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city... He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Would you picture that in your mind? Picture Jesus walking, traveling toward Jerusalem, you know, maybe on a 
a mountain or something and looking down and seeing the city of Jerusalem. And then he just begins to cry. The Son of God crying. Just going, man, if you guys only knew. It's not like I'm trying to ruin your lives. If you only knew who I was and how I'm just trying to bring peace to you. He goes, but your eyes are closed to it. It's hidden from you. And he, he just cries. See, it wasn't like Jesus walked up and saw the city and goes, you guys don't believe in me? You're going to go to hell. I'm going to punish. Watch what I do to you. No, he gets up there and he just weeps. He says, you're rejecting me. You're rejecting me. I just wish you could see it. But you don't. I mean, when Jesus was on the cross, what was he doing? Was he saying, okay, I'm going to get you back for this? No, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. Would you forgive them? Why? Because he still wants a relate. Even in that rejection, even as we reject God, he's not up there saying, okay, fine, I'll give them what they deserve. Even then, he's saying, oh, man, if you would get it, I just want to gather you together. Even when he's nailed to the cross, they don't get it. Lord, forgive them, forgive them. Don't, don't hold this against them. They just don't know what they're doing right now. See, that's the passion of Christ. It's the passion that God has for people. And sometimes we don't have that same passion. Sometimes when someone doesn't believe like we do, we get mad at them or get annoyed with them. They bug us. And yet for, for, for God, it's, it's something that breaks his heart. That's what you see in the life of Jesus. Does your heart break over people? You know, uh, I want to turn you to a, another passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel. And let me explain what's going on here, because this is... And I don't want to read too much into this. Okay, it's just kind of a, a very interesting thing. Do um, you guys know what the Ark of the Covenant is? You guys, you, guys, you guys know the Ark of the Covenant, the Old Testament. It was just this incredible, you know, chest that was, uh, you know, covered with gold that God commanded the people to make. And there was, you know, all these ornate designs on it. But it had these two angels on the Ark, okay? And, and these angels were called cherubim. They're like the high angels. Anytime you read about cherubim in the Bible, you'll see the presence of God because that's what it connotated. And the idea was that the, the Israelites would build this Ark. They would place it in the temple in this holy of holies. Okay, there was this veil that separated this ark and, you know, in this holy of holies from all the people. You weren't allowed to just walk in there. In fact, people would walk in there in the wrong time and they would die. Okay, it was something that was, that was very specific because the presence of God dwelt with that ark. Okay, and the idea was that God says, okay, you put that in the temple or you put it in the tabernacle first, but you put it in the temple and you put it in that holy of holies and then my glory will rest in that temple. And that's where, you know, that temple mount out there in, uh, in Israel, you know, Jerusalem, that everyone's fighting about, and, you know, the mosque is there and everything else. That's that whole area where that wailing wall and everything, that's where that ark sat, okay? And then God's glory dwelt above that ark, okay? Back then, you know, and then it got lost till Harrison Ford found it, and then, uh, you know, on and on. Now it's in some warehouse. But, uh, you know, the whole... Uh, do you guys see that movie? Okay, and you know, the, the whole idea is, is that's where the presence of, of, of God dwelt, was in that Holy of Holies. Now, in, in Ezekiel, what you have is you have God's people then start rejecting Him, and they don't want God as their king. 
And so in, in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel gets the uh, vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. Actually, turn to Ezekiel chapter 10. Okay? In Ezekiel 8, that's where the vision starts. But then in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, look what happens. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground as they went. The wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Okay. He gives this picture. He says the glory cloud, that glory of God just rose above the temple. Okay, so you're seeing it depart. But then it says, you know, it kind of just lingered there. But then it heads over. I know that way is east, but pretend this way is east. This is the way I picture because we're here in New York's here. So, so here you've got, the, it rises and then it heads over to the east gate of the temple. And that glory of God, that cloud, just kind of sat there. Okay? Now, now read on in uh, chapter 11 of Ezekiel, uh, in verse uh, 22. Verse 22, it says, Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city, and stopped above the mountain east of it. Okay? So, so you got the picture? You, you've got the, the cloud, the, the, which represented the presence of God. His glory leaves the temple. It's kind of hovering up there. And then it goes east to the east gate. Kind of hovers there for a little bit. Then it goes out to the mountain east of it, which is the Mount of Olives. Okay? And it hovers over there for a while. It's just kind of interesting because you would expect if God's glory is going to leave the temple, why doesn't it just shoot straight back up into heaven? But you see this little, uh, you know, it stands above the temple, goes a little bit east to the east gate and still looking at the temple. Then it moves over to the Mount of Olives, still kind of looking over at the temple. You just sense this hesitancy of God's glory leaving Israel because he didn't want it to. Now turn to Matthew 23. I'm going, I know I'm tossing you everywhere today. But this, I just want to show you one more thing. It'll, it'll make sense. Afterwards, you can go, wow. <laughs> or maybe not. Matthew 23, verse 37. Okay? Matthew 23, 37. It's, it's Jesus later on in his life, later than what we're st- studying in, in, in Luke right now. But look what he says in, in Matthew 23. It's, it's almost identical. Verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so he's saying the same thing. He's saying, look, your house... Okay, he's in the temple there, though. And then look at the next verse, verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. You see all these things he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Then look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. So you see the picture? Jesus teaching in the temple 
He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I just wanted to, I just wanted you guys to, I just want to gather you together. Okay? I just want to be your God. But you weren't willing. So he says, so see, your temple, your house, is left to you empty. And then he heads east toward the Mount of Olives. And before he gets there, he goes, he tells the disciples, look, this, this whole house, not one stone's going to be above another. You know, which, which is true, because that's what the Romans did. They obliterated the whole thing later on in, in about 70 AD. And then, uh, then he moves further east. And then he goes and teaches his disciples teaches the people a little more on the Mount of Olives. But, but it's, it's this whole picture of in the Old Testament, you had the glory of God leaving and heading east toward the Mount of Olives, just slowly, you know, and, and God's glory leaves the temple, and Jesus says, I'm leaving it too. Just like you rejected God as king in the Old Testament, now you reject me as your king, and he heads east. But all the way, I believe, just grieving over the fact that I've got to leave the temple. And it's that same picture. And the interesting thing is, is you don't have to turn there, but in Zechariah chapter 14, when it talks about the second coming of Christ, when Christ returns, where does he return to? The Mount of Olives. That mountain east of Jerusalem says he comes back and places himself. He stands on the mountain and it's, the ground splits beneath his feet. So the reason why I bring that up is a lot of times we think, okay, God in the Old Testament was this harsh, you know, I'm going to kill you, you know, if you don't believe in me, you know, and and, and then in the New Testament, oh, he softens up, you know, Jesus comes and now he's all lovey-dovey. No, that's not it. You read this book from cover to cover, it's about God has always loved his creation. He's always loved his creation. This book is the greatest love story ever told. It's about God making this world and saying, I love them, but look, they're all running away from me. You know, maybe if I, I, I take this nation, I'll take this nation and I will, I will just love them and I'll perform all sorts of miracles for them and I'll put them in their land and I'll have them defeat their enemies and miracle after miracle, I'll shower my love. I'll send them prophets and messengers to tell them how much I love them. And then this nation keeps rejecting this God. And he says, well, then I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son. And and he sends his son. And they reject him. And you've got to understand that. I mean, you understand why Jesus went to the cross? I mean, you know what that's for. I mean, the whole idea is God wants relationship with us. If, If Jesus did not come, then at the end of our lives, we would all pay for everything we've done wrong in life. And I don't know what you've done, you don't know what I've done. But I'm willing to bet your life's as bad as mine. And there's just as much garbage in your life as there is in mine. And the whole thought of, man, at the end of my life, having to face up to everything that I did wrong. You, you see, the whole idea is that I would be eternally separated from God because of my sin. I would be judged by Him. My wrath would, His wrath would be on me. And what God does is because He didn't want that and He wants me. He wants to gather me as one of his children. He wants me to spend eternity with him. He has his own son who does no wrong. His one and only son, he has him nailed to a cross. And on that cross, Jesus was paying for my crimes and for your crimes. So once and for all, he can demonstrate his love for the world and say, Look, can't you see I love you? I mean, what would possess a father to watch his only child nailed to a cross? and beaten and spit upon and rejected. I mean, how do you endure that as a parent? I mean, I've tried to put that image in my mind. I've got to kick it out. It's just too painful. The whole point is, he says, now that's how much I love you. 
This is the only way I can have a relationship with you is someone has to pay for your sin. You see, God loves you. I mean, what you do with that is up to you. I just want you to understand that it is not that right now in heaven is this almighty creator who up there just casually says, choose me or deny me. You live your life how you want, but you're going to pay for it in the end. No, you've got a God in heaven that says, listen, I am crazy about you. You are my creation, and I love you, and it breaks my heart when you walk away from me. I just want to keep you under my care. I, I put these parameters around because this is what's best for you. I can protect you. Here's my laws. Here's how I made this world. And yet we go running away from his wings going, no, I think I got a better idea. I think it'll be more fun out here. It's not like God says, just go. He just says, oh, how I long to gather you together. You know, on, uh, on Thursday, Lisa and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And it was just, it was so cool. You know, just, you know, we got married 10 years ago. And we just laughed. You know, we, just, we were just laughing at the way we used to be. We laughed at my hair. We laughed at, you know, just all the stuff. Remember that? Remember that? You know, went back to some of the places we visited our first year of marriage. And it was just so fun. And we are just like, gosh, remember that? And we just started talking about all the things that we went through. And, and it was so cool because, you know, I mean, back then I thought, man, she's my best friend. It's like now it's like she's really, really my best friend, you know. And it just, it just keeps growing. And it, it can be so good and so right. It doesn't mean that we didn't have some hard times that we worked through. It doesn't mean that there weren't some dry periods, you know, because uh, Lisa's very hard to live with, you know, and, uh, <laughs> kidding, you know, but, but it's, it's the whole idea of, you know, I see my own sin and I see myself sometimes getting too busy and neglecting the marriage. And there were times, you know, when I went through different phases like that, but through it all thick and thin, you know, it's like, it's so awesome to be here now, the 10 year mark and go, man, I'm more in love with you than ever. You know, things are better than ever. This is so Good. I'm glad we fought through the hard times. I'm glad we, we made it through the struggles. And I'm glad we just kept growing. And we're closer and closer and closer. And, and it's incredible how God created this. I mean, it's just an awesome time. I mean, this relationship just keeps getting better. And I look forward to the next 10 years if the Lord tarries and we stay alive. You know, just, it's, just, it's just amazing. And, and then I, I think about my relationship with God. I've been a, a Christian now. And I've had a relationship with God ever since around junior high and high school, some, somewhere around there. And, and even back then, I, you know, I, I thought it was great, but it just keeps getting better. And, and I didn't think, I didn't know there was so far to go. And, and now I realize there's still so much further to go, but I didn't recognize that. And, and now I, I, I'm here at this place where 20-something years later, I go, man, it's so cool to be under His protection. It's so good to know that, man, that God loves me. And, I, and I, even the last few years, I feel like I really understand His love now and what it means to be a child now that I have my own kids. And, and it's like, man, my, my relationship with God just kept growing, 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 and I didn't know it was going to be this good to where I look at the commands now, and they really aren't a burden. And when I was first a Christian, I was like, I don't want to stop that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And now over time, you realize, man, this is the greatest way to live. This is the greatest way to live. And your relationship with God just keeps getting better. And, and, and yeah, it doesn't mean that there weren't some dry periods. That sometimes when I neglected Him, sometimes when I rebelled against Him, and, and I, I just, you know, didn't like certain things that happened in my life, this or that. But to work through them and to love Him through it and get to this point, you know, 20-something years later, it's like, this is incredible. This is all God ever wanted. 
It's just this relationship where it's like, I know God. I talk to him every day. He, I, I see his fingerprint all, you know, all throughout my day, just his hand on everything I do. It's, it's, it's an amazing relationship. And, and I say that because I want you to understand, this isn't a religion. It's not God saying, here's a bunch of rules, obey them and I'll let you in. It's about a God in heaven that says, I'm crazy about you. All I want is just to gather you under my wings for you to be my people that I created to love me the way that I love you and to have this father-child relationship, to have this family relationship. And that's all I want. But so often you're not willing. You're busy. You got other things to do. You don't trust that the best place to live is under my protection. And so you go against what I teach, what I say. And that's your choice. And I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, God loves you. And what you do with it is up to you. How you respond to it is up to you. You can leave here, blow him off. Say, I don't want to be under his wings. I don't want him gathering me to himself. But understand that God doesn't just say, oh, well, I lost him, lost her. He grieves over that. That despite what you've done, he still loves you. And his son died for your sins.